join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. The Premier of Ontario seems adamant about having a fight with the Prime Minister of Canada about whether the borders are closed tightly enough. We also learn of internal government debates on whether you can open golf courses before schools and some fresh numbers from the Financial Accountability Office on overall health spending, hospital capacity and that surgical backlog which is huge thanks to COVID-19. It's Tuesday, May 11th, 2021, so let's get to it. JMM, it started as a, uh, well, what do we call it? Just a simmering dispute between Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau about how thick or thin the border should be. And while it might not yet be a full boil, it's definitely heating up. What is this all about anyway? What's the intermediate step between a simmer and a boil? Are we at a braise? I I don't know exactly. (laughs) That sounds right. Um, So the provincial government, or rather, uh, sorry, I should be clear, uh, the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario uh, is running attack ads against the, uh, I guess you could say the federal government or the the Liberal uh, Party of Canada. Um, You can see these ads online, especially on Facebook, which uh, that alone tells you something about where parties are going to be fighting the advertising war next election. Uh, But basically, the Ontario government is arguing that the third wave is uh, the result of the so-called variants of concern of COVID-19 that have come to Ontario because of international travel. Uh, You know, there's the Uh, We could evaluate the facts of that argument, but obviously it's a convenient argument for uh, the PC party and the Ontario government uh, because it shifts the responsibility for the third wave from uh, provincial jurisdiction and, you know, an arguable failure to uh, contain the pandemic using provincial public health measures uh, to uh, federal jurisdiction and the question of whether uh, air travel or border crossings in general uh, have been tightly regulated enough by the federal government. Well, I guess the Ontario government clearly sees this as a winning issue for them politically because they are sending out e-blasts asking Ontarians to sign a petition demanding that the feds thicken the border and of course asking people to contribute money to the PC party at the same time. The prime minister seems much less interested than the premier in rising to the bait here. Why do you think that is? <laughs> there, there has been some response from the uh, federal liberals and, and uh, again I would say that's a, a, a We've seen some partisan communications, but the government of Canada, uh, that that the prime minister's office, the uh, various ministries have been pretty muted, I would say. Uh, I think the, the most response we got was uh, over the weekend, we saw a letter saying that um, the federal government would like the province to be clear about uh, which groups of people who are currently permitted to uh, enter Canada should be stopped. Uh, and I think... That sort of puts a, a, a sharper point on what the province is saying. Um, I have to say, there are times where, you know, I, uh, you and I both have watched so many uh, political campaigns that even if you don't necessarily agree with what a party says, and uh, there's lots of that, uh, you at least understand what they're trying to do and who they're talking to and what they expect that person to hear when they, they see a message. This is one of those cases where I am actually really confused about what the PC party thinks is 
going to happen with this um, campaign. You know, I, I, I understand what they're trying to do. They would like to sort of shift the focus of responsibility from uh, the premier's office to <laughs> anywhere else. And uh, the prime minister's office is uh, right there and convenient. Um, but I just, I, I, I confess, I'm not sure it's going to work. Um, I, I think if you are receptive to this kind of message, you were probably already in the, let's say, one third or so of Ontario that was going to vote for the PC party anyway in the next election. And I don't see how this helps them really substantially in the polls, or, or it certainly hasn't, you know, silenced any of the criticism of the handling of the third wave. So, you know, it strikes me as something that the the governing party in Ontario is is doing for as much a lack of better options as because of anything else. It doesn't seem terribly effective and um, it sort of goes without saying, I think, that it doesn't really present an accurate argument about where Ontario is in the pandemic right now. No, but when you're slipping in the polls, which clearly the current government of Ontario, the Ontario PC party is, they have been slipping in the last several polls that we've seen. Uh, presumably, you try something, and this yeah. is the something that they're trying. And uh, I agree with you. I mean, it, it sometimes this um, sometimes it's a lot of head scratching, and you you don't really know where it's going, and and you know what the what the whole philosophy is underneath it, other than just uh, time to change the channel and blame somebody else for the predicament that we're in. And that seems to be the uh, tried, tested, and true playbook that they're playing right now. I think you know to give people a sense of. Uh a, a different example from a different party and a different a pre-pandemic time, uh, just to give a sense of what I'm talking about. You know, in the 2018 election, when the uh, Liberal Party rolled out its first big ads uh, to uh, really highlight some of the um, uh, some of the more offensive things that uh, then PC party leader Doug Ford had said. Uh, you know, in his municipal po uh, political career, uh, a bunch of us who remembered these quotes from his Toronto City Hall days were kind of confused because if you knew who Doug Ford was, you'd already heard all these quotes before. And that was certainly true of anybody who lived in the sort of battleground GTA ridings, which are like the Toronto media market anyway. And so a lot of us came out of that uh, briefing where the Liberals announced these ads that they were rolling out, really confused as to what they thought was going to happen because, you know, it, you were telling people stuff they already knew, and it was just really hard to see how that was going to change anything. Hmm. All right, let's move on from all of that to the race to get people vaccinated. Our listeners may remember our interview a few weeks ago with epidemiologist Isaac Bogosh, who was quite adamant about politicians and public health leaders speaking with a singular, clear, accurate voice and the problems that you can run into when that doesn't happen. Well, it didn't happen last week when Cabinet Minister Prabhmeet Sarkaria seemed to be contradicting what all the health professionals were saying about the effectiveness of the vaccines. Give us the 411 on that, if you would. Uh, so this is uh, Minister Sarkaria, the Associate Minister of Small Business and Red Tape Production, uh, and he was speaking to reporters uh, after question period at the legislature on Thursday. And he was defending exactly these ads and these uh, arguments that are coming out of the Premier's office. Uh, and he said the following. You know, there was a report that came out uh, just a couple, uh, I think it was either a couple days ago that's, you know, uh, concerning in, in, in the sense that, you know, the, uh, one dose of Pfizer is potentially only 30% uh, effective against the variants uh, from the UK. This is a study out of Qatar's. 
And if you listen closely, you might have heard uh, many of the province's epidemiologists screaming as they pulled their own hair out. (laughs) Yes, a lot to unpack there, so go for it. So it's true that uh, there was this study done in Qatar uh, that showed one dose of Pfizer vaccine is less effective against the UK variant. Um, But uh, Qatar is not doing vaccines the same way Ontario is. They are sticking to that initial schedule of uh, three weeks between uh, needles. So you can't really compare the two countries in that sense. Uh, we have a, a much, uh, we don't have perfect data because like there's no such thing as perfect data in the pandemic. Uh, but we do know that the um, immune response to uh, the Pfizer vaccine and to all of these vaccines continues to, to build at least somewhat uh, after the three week mark. And so it's, it's just not uh, really fair to compare the, the results of this study to what's going on in Ontario. Uh, and that's not just me saying that uh, the author of this uh, study that was cited uh, communicated that to Ontario doctors who made that public on Twitter last week. Um, the, the bigger concern, I think, is that people in the TV audience who, who may have been watching this clip, uh, either uh, initially or when it was uh, played later for TV news, um, you know, you could see the minister say this thing or say, you know, a thing like this and get confused about whether they should even get a shot in the first place. Uh, the public health messaging has been so confused and confusing on vaccines in the last few weeks. I, I don't think we needed yet another example of uh, a confusing statement from a podium being read into a TV camera. <laughs> In which case, when in doubt, let's talk golf. (laughs) Just about everybody is saying it doesn't make a lot of sense to force the province's golf courses to be closed, which of course they now are. It's an outdoor activity where the chances of contracting COVID-19 are quite insignificant. It helps with people's mental health to be outdoors. And the politics, the politics of this, John Michael, are also curious because... My best guess is that the people who have the resources to belong to a golf club are almost certainly more likely progressive conservative voters than not. However, the Toronto Star's Robert Benzie, full props to him here, he gave us some good insight last week on why the government wants to keep the golf courses closed in spite of all that. Do tell, sir. So I think you're probably right uh, in that uh, the uh, Progressive Conservative Caucus uh, has a lot of um, support. They probably have a lot of golfers just among MPPs, uh, but they certainly have golfers uh, who uh, are supporters and voters and and donors. And uh, a lot of those people are very angry and they are making their displeasure known to uh, Progressive Conservative MPPs. And the Star uh, published a story on the weekend So on the one hand, you have uh, the government telling its own MPPs that uh, as public health measures go, they just can't bear the politics of reopening golf courses before they reopen schools. Uh, Now, that on its own is actually, you know, something reasonable people could argue over, you know. I don't think you or I have seen anybody argue that golf courses or or outdoor amenities in general uh, have been responsible for serious transmission. Uh, The flip side uh, is that Uh, you know, the more things are open, the more people will move about generally. And the government has said that they are trying to control mobility as a general thing here. Uh, But that was, you know, like I said, reasonable people can at least argue about that. Uh, The other interesting bit that I took uh, from Benzie's article uh, was a, a source who conceded that 
opening golf courses would also uh, blow a hole in their ad war against the prime minister because it's uh, pretty difficult to say with a straight face that these variants of concern are incredibly dangerous and the federal government is being you know so irresponsible by letting people uh, cross the border and and fly in with you know insufficient measures or whatever um, it, it's difficult to say all that and then say oh and by the way the golf courses are open <laughs> I, I just don't get how this became a thing. Like, I just, maybe I'm thick and I'm just not seeing it, but I'm not sure what one has to do with the other. I mean, golfing is outdoors. Education is indoors. Golfing is, <laughs> golf, you're going to be outdoors. You're not going to get COVID-19 outdoors, more than likely. Uh, schools, a lot of them are in old buildings, poorly ventilated, et cetera, et cetera, an indoor problem where transmission is a serious problem. When did the notion of playing golf outdoors and being educated indoors become two things that were intelligent to compare to one another. <laughs> I'm lost, I have to confess. Well, you know, if we go back to the beginning of April when they first introduced uh, all of these lockdown measures, you know, the government said that it was it was uh, closing all of these outdoor amenities simply to try and get people to like stay literally in their homes, right? Don't go outside, don't go see people, don't go to you know, wherever, just, you know, stay home, do what, <laughs> do what the stay at home order says on the tin. Um, I don't think that, uh, that initial logic has stood up well. I mean, certainly, you know, obviously they had to reverse themselves within a weekend. Um, you know, our, our listeners will remember how furious people were about, uh, closing playgrounds, for example. Uh, but, yeah, I think that's been one of the really big questions for this whole, uh, most recent lockdown is are are we locking things down because you know golf courses or outdoor basketball nets or whatever are, are we closing these things down because they are directly linked to more transmission or are we closing them down because we're just trying to close absolutely everything down in which case <laughs> what about all of the essential industries that frankly aren't so at least some of them aren't actually that essential, but have been allowed to stay open too. So yeah, it's it's a bit of a muddle, I think, to to put it briefly. Well, have you been outside in the last couple of days? I mean, who's staying home? People aren't staying home. The streets are packed. People are are they are certainly disregarding the stay-at-home admonition. And and beyond that, if you're saying we can't open golf courses before we open schools because the political optics of that look bad. I mean, are you making your decisions based on science or are you making your decisions based on political optics? We've been told up until now it's, you know, science was carrying the day, but that sure doesn't sound like it in that comment. No, it does not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let us move on. And we really want to dive in deep now on this next thing, because this is, a, 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 I think, a quite important new study that has just come out uh, by... Um, the province's financial accountability office at Queen's Park. And just a reminder to everybody, this is the number-crunching organization that is nonpartisan. It works for the provincial parliament as a whole, not just the government of the day. And it's got a new study out which does seem to contradict some of the things that the current government is saying. We have heard, for example, Premier Doug Ford say on numerous occasions that he will spare no expense to protect people from the ravages of COVID-19. He says it sincerely. And yet the FAO, the Financial Accountability Office, says... The province's health sector spending plan in the 2021 budget, the one that just came out a month or so ago, calls for real per capita spending to decline by an annual average of 0.5% over the next decade. Now, there's a lot of other numbers in the FAO study, which we can touch on as well, but let's just start there. How can you say that you're going to spend whatever it takes 
to protect people and then pitch a budget that actually calls for spending in health care to decline. Well, you know, this is something that we've seen from uh, certainly other levels of government and even the provincial government before where, you know, you you tell people that, oh, well, look, a, a, you know, in raw dollars, uh, our spending is increasing. Look at how we plan to, you know, meet our priorities with this uh you know, large, generous, expansionist, whatever budget. Um, and then once you factor in both inflation and population growth, whoops, it turns out uh, that those numbers aren't quite as um, uh, robust, robust exactly, uh, as uh, previously billed. Uh, so, for example, uh, this FAO report uh, calculates that there will be a nearly $62 billion shortfall in health spending over the course of the next decade. And that's basically just looking at what the government has said it is going to do uh, in terms of its uh, spending program over the next uh, 10 years uh, versus the actual dollars that it has committed. And, uh, you know, one thing I would say, you know, you already said this a little bit about, uh, you know, how the FAO works for the legislature as a whole. It doesn't work for the government. Uh, But uh, Peter Weltman, who's, you know, the individual at the top of the office, uh, did emphasize in uh, this report that, you know, they're not calling for you know, higher spending or higher taxes or reducing spending. They are trying to give MPPs uh, information so that they can challenge the government. Uh, they can uh, criticize the government effectively. Uh, you know, the, the these documents are there uh, to uh, inform MPPs, help them do their job of holding the government to account. And, you know, as a happy knock-on benefit, uh, inform the public and maybe a few journalists too. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly right. This is just providing information, and it's up to the politicians and the public to do with it what they want. Um, Now, that's the overall picture. Let's dive in a little deeper here, because the FAO also looked into the phenomenon of the surgical backlog, which we've heard so much about. As we know, once COVID-19 took over our hospitals and intensive care units, previously scheduled elective surgeries were postponed or outright canceled, and the office now has a handle on what that looks like, And I have to say, JMM, the numbers are really quite frightening. They really are. And and also, I mean, I I didn't think there was that much left for me to learn about COVID. And yet we've we've talked so much about um, surgical procedures being delayed. And that's um, a really important issue in and of itself. And I guess something that had just flown below my radar was the extent to which uh, diagnostic procedures, like simply being able to try and like diagnose a condition, uh, those have also been uh, really seriously backlogged. So, I mean, some numbers here. Um, the postponement of uh, elective surgeries and diagnostic procedures is expected to increase the backlog uh, by more than 11,000 procedures uh, per week. And uh, that's for surgical procedures. And the diagnostic backlog is uh, being added to uh, at almost 52,000 procedures per week. Uh, overall, the FAO projects that the the elective surgery backlog is going to reach more than 400,000 procedures, and the diagnostic backlog uh, will reach nearly 2.5 million procedures uh, by the end of September 2021. Uh, Those are big numbers, but they aren't just numbers. Uh, That's 400,000 individual Ontarians who didn't get a surgical procedure uh, to improve their health, or 2.5 million diagnostic procedures uh, that could have for example, detected a possible case of cancer early and did not. Exactly. Now, I note in question period yesterday, the opposition leader, Andrea Horvath, was asking how the Ministry of Health intends to reduce this backlog. Did the health minister, Christine Elliott, have any good answers on that? 
Well, the government uh, has spent uh, $200 million, that was last fall, to try and uh, reduce the backlog. There is another $300 million uh, in the most recent budget from March. That's, you know, about a half a billion dollars altogether. You know, they are trying to do things like uh, increase the operations of hospitals so that they can do surgeries on weekends and in the evenings. Uh, they are also uh, putting out surgical wait lists so that if an availability comes up, somebody can be transferred in from uh, a different hospital to, to fill that slot so that uh, no, um, no surgery slots go wasted. You know, none of that is ideal, uh, but the government is hoping that that will um, accelerate uh, some uh, work into sort of working down that backlog. Well, fair enough. But the FAO, again, has crunched these numbers and estimates that it will cost $1.3 billion to clear the backlog. And the province hasn't allocated nearly enough to do that. So there's still a funding shortfall that the FAO estimates at $700 million. And, you know, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic about this, but if you're a woman waiting for a breast cancer screening procedure, that is presumably very discomforting news. Uh, The FAO estimated that at this rate, it's going to take three years to clear the surgical backlog and three and a half years to clear the diagnostic backlog. Three and a half years to clear a diagnostic back. If you're waiting for a breast screening exam right now to tell you whether that lump in your breast is cancer or not, I mean, is that an acceptable amount of time to wait to get that kind of treatment? I would think not. No, and I I don't think anybody could tell you that that's uh, acceptable. I think... um you know, a few weeks ago, I, I wrote something for uh, TVO.org about, uh, I think I, I called it the crisis is here or something about just how bad things had gotten in ICUs. And and this is part of the crisis, right? The, the crisis is that we have this enormous backlog that is literally going to be shaping healthcare outcomes in this province uh, for years. And... Um, you know, maybe we will find creative ways to work that down somewhat. Maybe we will spend more money. Maybe we will, you know, uh, doctors are endlessly creative people. I'm sure we will find things. Um, but the reality is that, you know, it's, it is going to be years that uh, even after everybody's vaccinated, even after all the public health measures are, are gone, it is going to be years that we are dealing with this. And, you know, it, it makes me wonder... Certainly when I was reading the report on Monday morning, uh, I found myself wondering if, you know, you could see Ontarians uh, sent to other provinces uh, or even the U.S. uh, to get important procedures done more quickly. And um, I don't know yet. I'll have to talk to some people and see whether that that makes any sense. Um, Off the top of my head, two big reasons it might not happen. Uh, The first being that it is um, it's very expensive uh, to send Ontarians uh, to have U.S. healthcare delivered at U.S. prices, uh, and it's a whole political lightning rod. Aside from that, uh, but the other reason why it might not happen is that like we're not the only people in this boat, right? Um, other jurisdictions, uh, other provinces. The, uh, I mean, New York State uh, has a, 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 all sorts of healthcare problems too right now, um, so there just might not be anywhere for us to go. All right, let's offer a little change of pace here and focus on something much more positive. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you may remember that last year we spoke to New Democrat MPP Percy Hatfield from Down Windsor Way. He sponsored a private member's bill in memory of Gord Downey to create the position of Ontario Poet Laureate. And uh, a little over a week ago, we found out who got that job. Uh, So we've invited Randall Ajay, Ontario's first Poet Laureate, to join us. Thank you.
Well, Rendell, tell us, how did you get this job in the first place? <laughs> well, uh, I've been doing a lot of work in the community. I've been working on my craft as a poet. I've been taking the time to understand how poetry can benefit community and help young people. And I was encouraged by a local MPP to apply for this position. I applied and heard back in, I believe, early February. I interviewed with the panel. <laughs> and once I interviewed with the panel, they reached back out to me say, to say that they wanted to have another conversation. And they let me know that I was appointed or I was about to be appointed. And then last week was the official appointment. I know. I watched it on television. Um, you stood up and um, you got quite a good round of applause at Queen's Park. How did you find that experience? It was surreal. And it was surreal for a number of reasons. It was surreal because my parents were there. And uh, having my both my mom and my dad there was really, really awesome. My dad is really into politics and they've never really understood my, my poetry, my love for poetry. And so to, to merge politics and poetry together, uh, my dad said, you know, if, if I... If it wasn't for you, I would have never, I would have, would have never been in this building. So you know, <laughs> so thank <laughs> you. Nice. And then I think on, on another level, to be completely honest with you, Steve, there's something to be said about um, you know both parties agreeing on something during a time like this that they've been disagreeing on on so much, and also of course them selecting someone. Uh, uh, you know, just so honestly, just being really frank, someone that looks like me, someone who represents a demographic that is uh, misunderstood and misrepresented and underrepresented as well, too. So it was a real phenomenal experience uh, to be there. Well, people are listening to us right now and they can't see you. So maybe we should explain a bit about um, what it says that the province of Ontario appointed a black man to be their first ever poet laureate. Uh, what Poet laureate, excuse me. What a what do you think that says? I think it says a lot. I think it says that we're in a space of uh, progression, that we're actually moving towards change and seeing that it's it's key and it's super, super important to ensure that we're all represented. If we talk about diversity in Canada, especially living in Ontario, I think one of the most more diverse provinces, that it's it's exemplified, that it's it's truly shown, uh, not just said. You're the first person to have this job. So can you essentially define the role any way you want? Essentially, yeah. I think that's the beauty of it, Steve, that I can I can really define it uh, however I choose to because of the fact that there is no framework. There's no outline. I have the opportunity to build the legacy and the framework of what it looks like. So it's, it's quite exciting. But I do know for now, the time being, that my hopes and goals are to really help infuse some of poetry and introspective poetry into the classroom and highlight and profile poets across the province and really advocate for literacy you know in our in our province to ensure that young people have access to literacy but also that they can use poetry and, and creative writing as a way to express themselves especially during a time like this I want to come back to that in a bit, but I first want to circle back to a couple of things you said already. You said your local MPP was the one who suggested you go for that. Who was that? Uh, that was Mitzi Hunter. So you're from Scarborough? I'm from Scarborough, yes. I grew up in the Guildwood area, and so she was, uh, yeah, she, was, she grew up in the same community as I did. Now, the guy who was sort of the driving force behind creating the poet laureate position was Percy Hatfield, the MPP uh, from Windsor-Tecumseh. Uh, have you had a chance to talk to him yet? 
I've spoken to Percy a number of times and I, I'm probably going to call him a little later today. Percy's a great individual, just a very genuine, authentic human being. I really respect him for his perseverance. He actually brought this to the table back in 2014 and it was denied by the opposition every year. <laughs> and so in 2019, they finally said that they were willing to to table it and, and take it forward. And I think the passing of Gord uh, really and, and honoring this position in his legacy, I think really uh, bought in, was bought in by all parties. Well, that's it. The title is named after, I mean, you're the Gord Downey Poet Laureate for Ontario. I, I don't even know. Were you a tragically hip fan? <laughs> I listened to a few songs. I can't, I'm not going to outright call myself a, a huge fan though. Okay. Percy Hatfield, when he did get up in the legislature to announce that this thing had finally passed, um, was extremely emotional about the whole thing. I think when you two have a chance to bump elbows or shake hands, I think it's going to be a very big deal for him. Uh, is that going to happen? Absolutely. You know, we had the opportunity to to chat a little bit about it during the announcement. We've spoken a few times since as well. And uh, I, I just think Percy's a great, a great person. Uh, I know he's he's been here before to talk about it, the initial um, the initial conversation around the Poet Laureate. And I know he's someone that I'll be I'll be reaching out to throughout my two year tenure and, and possibly after too. Gotcha. Uh, let's go back. How did you get into poetry in the first place? So Steve, Poetry found me <laughs> and it found me because I had to lose a part of me. And sometimes I feel we have to lose something in order to gain something. And what I lost was not, not very much in comparison, but I, I was a troubled child. I got myself into a lot of trouble. I was really angry. I wasn't quite sure of what, why I was angry. And like many of us, we deal with childhood trauma and my childhood trauma really showed up in the classroom. It showed up in how I was in, engaging with teachers and educators. Uh, so long story short, I had a grade eight teacher that seen something in me, you know, it was her second year of teaching. She's seen all the times that I'd gotten in trouble, all the times that I'd, you know, been suspended. And instead of judging me, she gave me a pen and she said, tell me your story. And it was a very beautiful moment for me. And uh, that's essentially how I got into poetry. I stopped, I stopped with poetry, but then I picked it back up again about a few years later. Isn't that great? Uh, look, at um, I don't normally ask people deeply personal questions, so if you don't want to answer this, that's fine. But if you do want to answer it, th uh, the nature of your your childhood trauma was what? The nature of my childhood trauma had to deal with, with abandonment and just feeling abandoned uh, at a young age and having to navigate some of the, the challenges that immigration posed on my family, essentially. Gotcha. And your family's from where originally? from Ghana, West Africa. Wow, yeah. okay. <laughs> Who are you hoping to reach in this new role of yours? I'm hoping to reach as many Ontarians uh, as possible, whether they see themselves as fans of poetry or enthusiasts of poetry or art. I'm looking to reach young people specifically. I'm looking to reach those who are dealing with challenges and those who may be looking for another way, another outlet to express themselves, or perhaps just an opportunity to have dialogue and conversations uh, through through some of the poems and that I'm hoping to create, and also the platform I'm hoping to create for other poets as well. So anyone, anyone really, but I, a huge emphasis on youth. Hmm. Um, I mean, this is admittedly a hypothetical question, but let me ask it anyway. What do you think it would have meant for you when you were a young kid growing up in Scarborough, Ontario, to see somebody like you 
performing this kind of role? You know, Steve, that's an incredible question. And I say that because when I was growing up, I can't say that I truly had very many positive role models to look up to. And in my community, it was it was a, a bit of a challenging community where I grew up in specifically. So if I had an opportunity to see someone that looked like myself in this particular role, I would be immensely over the moon because representation matters. It's important for young young black children to see themselves as successful and not the roles that were often casted in in movies and films and music videos uh, that generalize blackness. Now, one of your responsibilities, of course, is going to be to commemorate events that are both joyous and tragic. And so I want to ask you what power you think poetry has to commemorate these kinds of events that regular words just couldn't do the trick. There's something to be said about passion. And when I think about passion, um, I think about anger and love. They both derive from passion. And so we think about anger and some of that the passionate emotions that we get when we're angry or even perhaps when we're in love, some of the passionate experiences that come there. And so for me, uh, I'm, I'm happy to speak to that because I recognize that in order to appreciate the light, we have to go through some darkness. In order for us to really know how to love, I think there's a level of fear or hate that we we can be exposed to so we can truly deepen it. So I'm open, you know, to speak about tragic and happy, happy moments that will happen during my tenure. Uh, I've been through a lot. I've, I've seen tragedy myself, but I've also learned how to turn pain to power through my poetry. Hmm. Now, normally, normally, I presume you would be traveling all over the province of Ontario to fulfill this mission of yours. But of course, these are not normal times. Are you going to be basically doing all your poetry reading virtually in the short term? Essentially, yes. I will be reading most of my poetry virtually for the time being. It's, it is a very interesting time to not be out, out in the province and out in the community, but I'm hoping that there may be some other avenues, perhaps maybe some virtual reality avenues that may allow for a different, uh, a different way of pre- presenting my poetry, but we'll see. we'll see what it looks like in the future. They may call you the Zoom poet before long. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That was a nice one. That was, that was clever. <laughs> well, it seems appropriate, I think, before you leave us to, uh, to show us what you got. Have you got a short poem you might be able to lay on us right now? Absolutely. So I, I, I want to I actually honor, honor Gord Downey and his legacy. Something I've learned over the years, Steve, is essentially two things in life are guaranteed. We'll be born one day and one day we will no longer be here. And I don't think either or are good or bad. I just think they just are what they are. It's it's us human beings that give it meaning. But at the same time, Gord left a legacy that afforded me the opportunity to be here. And I would also add that um, it's not about the day we're born nor about the day we leave. I think it has everything to do with the dash in between. And so this poem is called The Dash. And it's to encourage us all to think about what legacy we're hoping to leave behind. I often question, I often question if a coffin is where my legacy is destined, a rigor mortis reflection of me buried six feet deep in the six, my legacy, my soul, awaiting the arrival of 12 disciples and no remnants of me, no fruits of labor left from my seeds, not leaving this world better 
than when I came in. My name forgotten, not even whispered upon the lips of those my actions impacted, it is scary. I heard once that the worst thing that can happen to us when we are no longer here is not death itself. It is to be forgotten. And I cringe at the thought of my efforts lost in coffins, boxed in the same confines that caused me problems. My life, my life inflicted, my life and goals boxed in between the lines that I was left. And no stories for me to leave behind. And I often question if a coffin is where my legacy is destined. So when your time comes and your soul is sent, what will the dash on your tombstone represent? Thank you. Randell, that was fantastic. I, I, I want to ask you one follow-up question from that. When did you write that? I wrote that poem... I want to say a few years ago, I wrote that poem, just thinking about my existence and my life and what it meant to be alive. Very powerful stuff. I'm so glad to meet you, if only virtually here. I look forward to the days when I can see you do your thing in person, shake hands, bump elbows, whatever. And in the meantime, we wish you great good fortune as Ontario's first ever poet laureate. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. Have a great day. That was Randell Ajay, Ontario's first Poet Laureate. And we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those for you immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and help make this show a little bit better. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here now, my quote of the week. JMM, what do they say about never performing with kids or animals? <laughs> Canise Mooley, who is the Liberals' next election candidate for Oakville, North, North Burlington, tries to help announce her party's child care platform, but has a bit of a problem getting shouted down by her own kid. Have a listen. As a new mom, as you can tell, of a six-month-old, I've had to start thinking about our plans for when I need to go back to work. I think Ontario deserves a better than a system where moms have to That's Kenise Mooley last week learning that the mute button actually comes in handy when you're trying to announce a new child care plan. <laughs> I mean, they invited their kids on. <laughs> that was. <laughs> what did they expect, right? Yeah. What's the joke about second marriages, the triumph of hope over experience? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. On the other hand, you know what? I give them props because uh, you're going to do a childcare announcement. It's good to see some kids there. Absolutely. Better Absolutely. that than a bunch of old politicians. Anyway, there we go. <laughs> Uh, my quote of the week is from uh, Minister of Health Christine Elliott uh, at Queen's Park on Monday uh, when she was asked whether the government would extend the current stay-at-home order past May 20th. So it's really a question of, of a time and how quickly those numbers can come down that we will be able to um, receive a final uh, advice from our Chief Medical Officer of Health and our other medical experts about uh, when we can... Uh, uh, release the stay-at-home order. That was Christine Elliott at Queen's Park on Monday, and I think we can translate that fairly as meaning don't make any plans for the Victoria Day long weekend. Sounded that way to me as well. Oh, well. Okay, that was episode 111 of the On Poly podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor and Matthew O'Mara, with editing from Matthew as well. Production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, we end every program the same way. As my dad likes to say... Stay positive, test negative. 
I like that, to think that we are uh, a little bit of consistency in a chaotic time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> stay safe, Steve. <laughs>